so what we do every Sunday before we jump into the passages, we, uh, we talk to our kids, our young ones, let you know this is what the sermon's going to be about. This is what the passage, the, the, the passage in the Bible is going to be about. So uh, kids, this is a true story. True story. Heard this from another, another pastor. Pastors don't tell lies like this. Not, well, not, not when they're preaching. So um, uh, true story. There was a, there was a 12-year-old girl uh, who, who, she got really sick. She got really sick with a thing called cancer. And when she found out that she was really sick, she, she started a diary. She started a notebook where she wrote down her favorite verses in the Bible because she's reading stuff all over the Bible and she's writing down her favorite verses. And, and she did not get better and she, did, she died. Uh, and when this girl died, she died, you know, she found out she had cancer when she was 12. She died when she was 14. Uh, her family, her friends, they found this notebook of, of hers. And they're going through it, and they're reading about all these verses that she loved and why she loved them. And in the middle of the notebook, it was like her placeholder, there was this index card. And uh, it wasn't a verse written on it, but she, she had written on it, the moon is round. And, they, they were, and it was in her handwriting, and they did not know, like, what, for the longest time, they didn't know what that meant. And then it hit them, because it's, it's this thing of, kids, when it's dark out, like, you go outside, and it's, like, a really, really dark night, and you see, you see the moon, but it's in a crescent, you know? It's just like that sea. You see just a sliver of it. Okay, what do you know about that moon? What do you see that it's just a little, it's just a little sliver? But what do you know about the moon? The moon is round. It's a sphere. It's a circle. The moon, so even when, even when you can't see all of the moon, you know what? You know the moon is round. And so that young girl, she was suffering and she was dying of cancer. She believed that even though she could not see what Jesus was doing in her life with this cancer, with her sickness, what did she know about Jesus? That Jesus loved her. That even though she didn't understand what was happening to her, she still knew that Jesus had saved her. She still knew that she was going, yes, she was going to die, but then she was going to see Jesus and live forever. Now, how did she know, y'all, kids, how did she know that she was going to live forever? Because, Teddy, what does the Bible tell us? That's right. And the Bible tells us what? How did she know that she was going to live forever? Keep going. Jesus is going to come again. And what has, not only is Jesus going to come again, what has Jesus already done? He died for our sins by dying on the cross, which means he died for your death. So you are going to live forever. He can get you out of the grave. And when he comes back, yeah, you die now and you go into heaven. And when he comes back, he's going to get your body out of the grave. She knew that she knew that I can't see this. I don't understand this. But here's what I know. Just like I know the moon is round, I know that Jesus still loves me, like, no matter what. And I know that no matter what, even though I die, I'm not going to die forever. I'm going to live forever because of Jesus. Nothing, kids, nothing, nothing, nothing in this world can separate you from the love of Jesus. Not even death, because he's even beaten your death for you. That's the good news of the gospel. 
That's what we're going to see today in our passage. Uh, And uh, if you just happen to look down at that passage, you might see Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, and you'd see this name, Brooks Harwood. I'm not Brooks. Uh, Our beloved uh, RUF campus minister at the University of Houston, he was scheduled to preach for us today, and he called me yesterday. Uh, he was really sick, and so uh, hopefully he's, he's feeling better and he's on the mend, uh, but so we, we're, we're missing Brooks this morning, but uh, this, is, so this is a passage that I'm not going to do Colossians 2. Brooks is going to be back for us at some point, and he's going to do Colossians 2 for us. This is a passage, I'm going to do John 11. It's a passage I've preached, I think I've preached to you all before a uh, long time ago. I've, I've preached this passage a number of times. I've preached it at three funerals, including my grandmother's. And this may sound weird. This is my favorite passage in the Bible. And you're thinking of John 11 like, oh yeah, I know it's not that part of John 11. Uh, uh, I fell in love with this uh, in seminary after hearing my New Testament professor explain it to me. He said this would be the last passage he, wouldn't wanna, he would want to preach uh, as, a, as a preacher, and I, I think I agree with him. Uh, please stand for the reading of our passage. It, it's John 11 verses 1 to 16. If you've got a Bible, Bible app you want to open up, or you can just follow along says this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village. uh, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, The passage, it seems simple enough, straightforward enough. Guy gets sick. Everyone argues over whether the trip to help out is worth it. Uh, But but this is actually so much, 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 much more dramatic than it seems uh, and raises raises a few big questions. Uh, Jesus gets word from two sisters, Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus, Quote, the one whom, you, whom Jesus loves is very sick. Jesus is, he's close to these people. These people are like family to Jesus. Lazarus is like a brother. Mary and Martha are like sisters. So it's really weird 
the way John narrates in verse five that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was at death's door, he does nothing. It's supposed to, like, that's weird. Okay, Jesus stays put. And that does not sound like love. Later in the passage, when Jesus shows up at the tomb, we didn't read this, but later when he shows up at the tomb of Lazarus, he begins crying, starts weeping terribly. And it's that famous shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Uh, When people see Jesus weeping at the tomb, the people say, this is later in verse 36, they say, see how he loved him, which is so close and at the same time so far off. Because Jesus did not love Lazarus, past tense. And I know it, I know, you know, here we go. Like, oh, wait, now look at verse five. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, yeah, right. But listen, if we were to get into our Greek and our declensions, uh, and we remember that Greek tenses are actually indicated differently than they are in English. They just work differently. And you spend all this time trying to figure it out in Greek uh, uh, as you're learning it. Once you get it, you get, like the English tenses are, uh, they're more complicated than simply past, present, future. That right there in verse five, it's, it's, not ref, it's not referencing Jesus's love for the family in the past tense. And that's made really perfectly clearly uh, by the next verse, verse six, which says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's his present love for Lazarus that makes him stay put. And just a little more fun Greek here. The word for love in verse five is a different Greek word than the word uh, for love in verse three, which is the same. So the word for love in verse three is the same word in verse 36 uh, for love. Okay, and that is because John is trying to make a point between what's said in verse three and what's said later by the people in verse 36. As in, in verse three, Lazarus is the one who Jesus loves. In verse 36, the people say Lazarus is the one who Jesus loved. And the question is, is Lazarus still the one Jesus loves? And the answer is yes. And that means the love of Jesus does not mean you should expect to have your best life now. Jesus' love does not mean you're not going to have trouble and suffering. Jesus, the one who you love, is sick. That is all true. Lazarus is sick, and Jesus loves him. And we don't like this. And the world does not like hearing this about Jesus. Christian, we, like we in the church, we, let's be honest, like, well, I don't like that. I wish it was not like that which is why we find ourselves thinking and maybe we, we, we say in our suffering, like, I've given my life to you, Jesus. And if, it, like, and if you loved me, like, what, why? Okay, so why am I sick? Why am I hurting? Why am I lonely? Why am I suffering? Why am I in trouble? Like over and over and over and over and over. Here it is completely clear. The one who you love is 
sick. Jesus, people that Jesus loves, they get sick and they suffer and they get hurt and they face trouble and they face loneliness and they face persecution and they face death. And we wanna know how does that work and Jesus wants us to know how that works. He knows the disciples want to know how all that works. So Jesus explains, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And there it is. If Jesus loves you, if you are his, suffering will come into your life. It's guaranteed. We are told it's guaranteed. Because this life is broken, because it is full of sinful people, and God has awesome plans for what he's going to do in your life and the lives of those who are around you through your suffering. Now, we could, now here's where we could pause, and we could talk a lot about the purposes of suffering, and we could talk about the pat answers to here's why they're suffering, and, and then we could talk about the, the real good ones uh, that the Bible gives us for talking about suffering, and we are, like, we are going to. Uh, it, there's so much in 2 Corinthians that is just going to unfold that for us, this most personal letter from Paul to this, to this church. But just for sake of time this morning, the big so what, the application of this passage, it is truly, it is an attitude about your identity. Like there is nothing else that is going to truly solve people's sense of worthlessness, this feeling that you are insignificant in the midst of this broken life or that you have been abandoned by that God who says he loves you. Nothing else is gonna solve this attitude, this thing of how we think about ourselves than Jesus' love for you. But what you hear today, the prescription today for all, for, and you hear this from all kinds of different leaders and parents uh, in society, cultural leaders, that what you've got to do is learn to love yourself, whoever you choose to be, and then go out and demand recognition from everyone else. We're not talking about demanding tolerance. We're talking about you need to demand validation. You need to demand approval of your chosen identity. And whoever denies your choose, chosen identity, they are doing violence to you. And that is where your whole self-worth will come from. That is how you will secure your identity. And I say, with this, I say this with all love, that is nonsense. That's the pick yourself up by your bootstraps idea, which is in fact impossible. And it, it reminds me of this scene that has stuck with me since I was a little kid. There's this cartoon show, and the dad character is not the brightest, and he accidentally walks into a tar pit. And his wife and his kids freak out, and they yell for someone to grab a rope. And the dad responds just nonchalantly, no, 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 that's okay. I'm pretty sure I can struggle my way out. First, I'll just reach in with my arms and pull my legs out. And now I'll pull my arms out with my face. And then down he goes, completely under. Um, it's in like, okay, we, we do need someone outside of us to affirm we're worth something. But the problem with other people is that, well, they're really contradictory. And, and they're not good either. So they're ultimately not a good source of affirmation. Ultimately, the best way, the best we can do with each other is to say, what we can do with each other is say, hey, you're screwed up and I'm screwed up. Let's be screwed up together. And that 
that is a huge help. And we do need to say that to each other. It's really good, but it's not enough. What we absolutely need in the middle of darkness and suffering and death is God himself in the person of Jesus saying that yes, 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 you are suffering and I love you. And that you are worth everything to him. This is the fundamental identity that Martha and Mary ascribe to their brother Lazarus. Lazarus is the one whom Jesus loves. And that's also the fundamental identity that John, the gospel writer, takes on himself. Did you know, did you know that John, he actually, he, this is the gospel of John account, remember? He actually never names himself in the whole gospel account. And instead, he refers to himself twice, once in chapter 13, once in chapter 20, as, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John finds his true identity in the fact that Jesus, that's who he is, that Jesus loves him. That's his identity. And he does not mean as the one who Jesus loves. Like, John's not saying, oh, I'm the one Jesus loves more than anybody else. Like, I'm the faith. That's not what, he's just saying, like, this is who I am. And, guess what? and this is who you are. Like, you should take up this identity. He's leading by example and saying this is the identity of every follower of Jesus because you are not your job and you are not your unemployment and you're not your underemployment. That does not define you. And wives and moms and husbands and dads and sons and daughters and boyfriends and girlfriends and singles and widows, you are more than those relationships. You are so much more than a political affiliation. You are not essentially your nationality, and you are not essentially your ethnicity, your race. You are not where you went, where you were going, or where you never went to college. And you're not your cancer, and you're not your sickness, and you're not defined by your suffering. You're not your struggle. Your identity does not equate to whatever hardship, whatever darkness, whatever trouble that you are facing, that you have been facing, like forever. You are the one whom Jesus loves. Like Lazarus is the one whom Jesus loves. And it's Jesus' love for Lazarus, uh, which is, it's the reason Jesus stays and does not go to Lazarus. And Jesus' love is why everything here is about to go nuts Y'all think, think of every movie scene that has that line, like, it's quiet. Yeah, a little. And then, boom, ambush, something big goes on. Like, think, think, think Christmas before anyone is up. Like, it's, think of 2019. Like, calm before the storm. And for the whole Gospel of John... This is the calm right here. This is the calm before the storm. This is right here where Jesus is. This is eerily calm on the sea, too calm, too still. Storm is coming because this right here, this passage, verses 1 to 16, it is the crux. It is the hinge of John's whole gospel. These 16 verses. When Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick and he says he's staying put, like two days later, then Jesus decides it's time to go. 
It's time to go to Judea to see Lazarus. And Jesus' followers, they freak out. Like, it's not like a simple, like, back and forth. Oh, you know, man, is it worth the trip? Like, they freak out. They freak out because Jesus just left Judea because they were nearly stoned to death there by the people there. And Jesus says, yeah, I know, and it's time to go back. And there's more arguing. And Jesus finally explains that Lazarus has died and he has got to go raise him up. And then Thomas says, let's go die with Jesus. And Thomas is like, he's being serious. Here is, you know, man, he gets such a bad rap. Understandably, you know, right? But here's doubting Thomas, being courageous Thomas, who says he'd rather choose death with Jesus than life without him. Like he's not gonna like, he's not gonna abandon him here. And the disciples have already warned Jesus, it is a death sentence to go back to Judea. The disciples are not making this stuff up. If Jesus returns to Judea, he is going to be killed. And you can't keep going back to the same like murderous situation and think you're going to get away with it. And the spoiler is, if you keep reading to the end of chapter 11, like Jesus shows up four days later, after Lazarus dies, he goes to the tomb, he raises Lazarus back from the dead to life. And then right after this, tons of people go home. Everyone's talking about it. They tell the Pharisees, they tell the religious leaders, and the Pharisees call a special meeting, and right there they decide, that's it. And they decide to kill Jesus. This is verse 53. This is at the end of chapter 11. From that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Because now this has gotten out of hand. Too many will follow Jesus now because of this miracle. And so his enemies begin to make plans to put him to death. Here in our passage, before all of that, his disciples are warning him, listen, only bad things are going to happen if you go back there. And Jesus knows. He knows it even better than they do. That if he goes and he raises Lazarus, he knows he's forcing the hand of his enemies. He knows what's going to happen if he goes to Bethany. It will lead him ultimately to the cross outside of Jerusalem. Now, John, the gospel writer here, he is going out of his way to put this event, to make to highlight this event uh, uh, in the way of everything that leads up to Jesus' crucifixion. This is, this is why everyone gathers because of the raising of Lazarus, that's why everyone gathers for the triumphal entry. Like that's why the crowds are suddenly so huge and big. Like in the very next chapter, in chapter 12, they're waving those palm branches. They're yelling Hosanna. They're yelling for Jesus to save all of them. And it's, it's, it's almost as if John is saying like, I, mean, I really like, no, I, I think I know why Matthew and Mark and Luke didn't like, they, I get the point that they were trying to make. This has got to be, like, people have got to know this one too. His, and his point is that just as much as the triumphal entry itself and the cleansing of the temple and the other accounts, the raising of Lazarus, it is the last straw for Jesus' enemies and what causes them to conspire to put Jesus to death. That's why this is the turning point in John's gospel. That's why this is the hinge. This is the hinge of the whole thing right here because Jesus has two choices. Jesus can stay where he is and he lives and Lazarus dies. Or 
Jesus goes to Judea and Lazarus lives and Jesus dies. And Jesus goes and he chooses Lazarus. Jesus knows that in going to Lazarus, he is sealing his own doom and he goes because Jesus really, really does love Lazarus. And what the disciples can't see is that Jesus isn't sacrificing his own good just for the good of Lazarus. He's going to Lazarus for the good of his disciples too. Like Jesus knows the road to Judea, the road to Lazarus will lead him all the way to Jerusalem to the cross, which means Jesus' choice here, it's cosmic. Jesus can stay where he is and he lives and we die. Or Jesus can go to Judea and to the cross and we live and Jesus dies. When Jesus enters the town of Lazarus, he knows there's no going back this road. It's going to the cross. And Jesus goes. He goes to that cross. And he goes to defeat death for Lazarus and for Martha and for Mary and for his disciples and for you and for me. Loved ones, we cannot avoid all suffering and we cannot overcome death. But our Lord and Savior has, and he will not leave you in the grave. Let's pray. And Father, so we come uh, and we pray that this gospel, that it would truly be good news to us and that we would hold on to it because there is no other the good news in the face of our suffering and in the face of bless us as a people, as a family, Lord, bless us to constantly, always hold this gospel out to each other here. Help us to always run to your throne of grace. Help us always to run to your grace. Help point us, point us always back to that cross that point that would point us all to right now that you are with us to the future knowing at the end, it's not death, it's life, it's forever. And it's with you. Father, also bless us, help us to be so full of your grace and to be so fixated on that gospel that we couldn't help but share it with those who want to hear it, who are perishing without it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.